Earlier this year at the Los Angeles OA birthday party, the Los Angeles Interview set up a Roseanne Memorial Room. Included in that room was this audio of Roseanne's last pitch made at the Light a Candle meeting in Brentwood, part of Los Angeles. This was Light a Candle's first meeting on September 1st, 2001. In it, you can hear Roy L., the man who started Light a Candle, introduce Roseanne. Um, our main speaker tonight, and we're very honored to have her here. She'll have until uh, 525 to share will be Roseanne S. So I just want to introduce her without any further ado. Hi. My name is Roseanne S. And I am a compulsive overeater. And how do I know that? Because when Roy asked me to speak and I knew we'd be through at 6.30, I said, where can we eat dinner around there afterwards? <laughs> so you know how I know. I've had uh, a, a discussion with World Service, so I'm going to show you some of the things that I have here. Um, I've been uh, in Overeaters Anonymous uh, since January 19th, 1960. That's 41 years and seven or eight months. And I have uh, 14 years, on the 4th of this month, God willing, I will have 14 years and 10 months of abstinence, and I've been maintaining a 50-pound weight loss. And I am now at goal height, because when I started out in OA, <laughs> when I started out in OA, I was 5'2", and I, at the last measurement, I was 4'10 and a quarter. And you know I have uh, compression fractures and osteoporosis. And I said to the I said to the girl, measure me again. That just can't be right. And I stood up as tall as I could. And she said, I don't know what to tell you. That's what you are. So I said the serenity prayer. Um, <laughs> uh, I had to, you know, it's my my long term memories is up in I was 72 this summer, so my long-term memory is kind of shocked. And so what I did before I came was to read my story in our new book <laughs> so that I could remind myself of what had happened because I've been living in the present. <clears throat> and I, uh, I think what I'd like to do, usually, you know, we have a three-minute pitch, and I'm always waiting for the timer and all that kind of stuff or a 10- or a 15-minute thing. I have never, I've never had this long to talk, never, uh, nor have I ever been allowed to talk this long in a way. Um, in our, I come from a really high achieving family, I mean really high achieving, and uh, I, this is all part of what made me the way I am. My, my uh, mother's family came from Green Bay, my grandpa had the first movie theaters, the first automobile, my grandmother was involved with Margaret Sanger before Margaret Sanger ever founded Planned Parenthood. My mother, uh, in 1921, had a contract with uh, Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. She graduated from college, which girls didn't do then, and she uh, went to Mount Sinai to teach. Uh, she was a dietitian. 
to teach home economics to the doctors and nurses and to teach the antisepsis in the hospital room. My father was really very famous in uh, B'nai B'rith, which is an international Jewish organization. So I come from a really high-achieving family. And, you know, they, they um, when I think back, achievement was, was everything. Uh, I, was, I was reading, uh, let's see, I have a younger brother. Yeah, I learned early that the way to be work, worth anything was to work very hard and to achieve beyond the scope of most other people. Growing up, we believed, my brother and I, that just being a loving person wasn't enough. We had to excel to be worthwhile. And unfortunately, during all this period, uh, I hated myself. I mean, I really hated myself. And the, I started eating early. You know, food is... is uh, now, I come from the generation where my mother said, finish your play, remember the, the starving children in China. That's my generation. Uh, the, then there are other countries for other generations. <laughs> but the uh, theory for the mothers was the same. And um, I, uh, I watch my, one of my daughters do a very similar thing with my four-year-old grandson, and I'm not thrilled, but I decided to keep my big mouth shut. Uh, but I had, you know, I had all my life people would say, you have such a pretty face if, if only you'd lose weight. I couldn't, I just, I just couldn't stand that. And um, I went to, um, I had two years of high school and I went to the University of Chicago under, a, a, um, Robert Hutchins had become chancellor and there was a specialized plan. I took the test and I passed it. It was a big mistake because my head wasn't ready and my mind might have been ready, my brain might have been ready, but the rest of me wasn't ready. Anyway, uh, I <laughs> decided at 18 when I went to live in the dorm that I was going to, God, I hated myself, but I wanted to date. And I was about 100, well, I'm not about. I, you, you know, we all remember what we weighed at every given moment of our lives. And I was 142 and I was 5'2". And I was uh, 18 years old. And I can't remember being so young, but, and everything was, everything pointed, you know, what I do remember is everything pointed north. <laughs> and nobody told me then about gravity. But, um, so, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> happens to all of us. Um, but I gave up excess food to date. I got down to 118. And oh boy, I dated, I did, I had the cards in my, in the toy chest out in the garage. I dated 36 different guys that year, never studied, flaunted everything. My father was so furious that he said, you're through, I'm not paying for college for you anymore, and you gotta go to business school. Now, I, is anybody here from the Midwest or the East? Um, I went to Catherine Gibbs. Anybody know Catherine Gibbs sec was secretarial school, really, really top notch. I'm a, Katie Gibbs girl, which is what gave me the training to set up the first OA office in my dining room uh, when I was setting up the OA office, but that's a few years later. But that gave me the training. And uh, at any rate, God, my father was so mad at me. And my mother, I remember my mother saying, if she's going to go to business school, she's going to go to the best. And so, that, so I graduated from Katie Gibbs, and then... I was I was maturing at that point. I was also back to overeating. 
and so I wasn't dating. And uh, when I was 19 and I graduated from business school, I went back to the University of Chicago. My father wouldn't do it, so I cashed in all. We had war bonds. I'm from the World War II generation, so we had war bonds, and I cashed in my war bonds and put myself through. By that time, I realized how important it was to graduate from college, to get a decent education. And so I did that. Then I got a job out in... um, um, I wanted to be an actress. I mean, I really wanted to wipe Helen Hayes right off the map. I did. Uh, I don't know whether it was because I wanted to be famous or because I really loved the theater and I loved acting. But uh, I got a job as a producer's secretary at a summer theater. This is after I graduated from college, out near Chicago. We had moved from Milwaukee to Chicago. I'm from the Midwest. And um, Imogene Coca, now I don't know anybody here knows about Sid Caesar and Imogene Coca, but at that time they were very famous. And uh, Imogene Coca was there for three weeks. We were all kind of isolated uh, in a play. And I said to her, I'm going to New York in the fall to look for a job in the theater or television. And television was just beginning. This is now 1950 or so. And she said, call me when you get there, and we'll see what we can do. And I, I remember thinking, sure, sure. But I called him, and my God, her husband took me down to personnel. Uh, I got a job. You know, I never could take decent shorthand, but I got a job. And um, I called my mother. I was so excited. I was secretary to the producer of the Bob Hope Show. And I was uh, 20 years old or so. I told you I can't remember the age. I can remember the weights. <laughs> and I can remember the heights, but I can't remember the ages. But I was, in, I was about 20 or 21. And I stayed in New York for a year and a half. I worked for Bob Hope. I worked for Eddie Cantor and Kate Smith and the old Broadway Open House and all of this stuff. All of this as television was just just beginning. It was You can't imagine how exciting it was to be in on the ground floor of the industry that we take for granted. However... I remember sitting in front of that producer of the Bob Hope Show one day. Today, he would never dare say anything like that. And he said, you know, honey, you got a really pretty face. If only you'd lose some weight. And he himself was none too thin. (laughs) But uh, in those days, you could get away with it. In these days, you can't do that anymore. So I had that my whole life. Anyway, I decided after a year and a half to go back to Chicago, and I got a job. I had won the um, uh, Vogue Prix de Paris in the Mademoiselle uh, College. There was a graphics and writing contest, a nationwide uh, graphics and writing contest, and I had uh, I had placed up in the top of both of them. As a result, I got a job as a copywriter, and that's what I really love to do. I love to write. I have written a great deal of always literature, and I make my, I still make my living as a writer. And so I got a job as a copywriter, and it it was just wonderful. But I'm still eating, and I'm still hating myself, and my mother is still yelling, achieve, achieve, while she also is yelling, uh, uh, big, fast, I remember, I can remember, we lived in the third floor walk-up, I can remember going down the stairs while she's shouting at me, you cow, you big, fat, fat, sloppy Anna. And the whole family were compulsive, we were all compulsive overeaters. So this was sort of like the pot calling the kettle black, you know, that kind of stuff. But um, I couldn't shake that feeling of, of, of self-hate. I just, it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter how much I achieved. It didn't matter whether I dated. It didn't matter whether I lost weight. It didn't matter who I worked for. It did, just didn't matter. I couldn't get rid of it. And I didn't know what to do. 
And so, except I, I thought if I ate, uh, it would it would help. But you all know that that didn't help either. And so, um, I and I resented my mother. I that was at the core of my being all the time I was growing up. And my mother had some problems, and she was a little pushy at me, as a as I recall. Anyway. But um, by the time I was ready to really be a daughter to her, she had died. That was about 20 years ago. Uh, but, um, but poor mother, I just, I, I needed someone to resent, and she was it. And I thought that if she would shape up, I would be okay. I didn't know that I had to shape up to be okay. And so... Um, I said to mother, I, finally, you know, I'd been doing copywriting in Chicago long enough. This was now 1955, and I was 26 years old. And uh, I said, my grandmother, my grandparents lived out here. My, grand, my grandmother lived out here. My, my grandfather had died. And I said, I'm going out to Los Angeles, and I'm going to live with grandma, and I'm going to find fame, fortune, and a husband. And so I just packed myself up. And I came out to, to Los Angeles, and I moved in with Grandma. I never even asked her. <laughs> I just moved in with her. And I got a job uh, as a copywriter. And eventually, eventually I got a job um, working as assistant um, fashion advertising manager for what was then the chain of Robinson stores. And it was my first step off the career ladder. And I had given up food now. Now I want to find a husband. So I have to give up food again. And I get down to 118. 118 at that time was my husband hunting, dating, <laughs> looking for a guy weight. <laughs> that was the weight. And I was still 5'2". <laughs> and I was 26. And I went to um, a, a very beautiful... Um, it was hard, though, to give up the food, to be obsessed by, by, about finding a man, and to not be able to deal with the feelings that I had. It was really not great. Uh, I went to a Sunday afternoon cocktail dance. I don't know. Does anybody here remember Fred Waring? Do you ever watch PBS? When they, thank you. <laughs> it's a big from the big band era. A Sunday afternoon cocktail dance at the Coconut Grove in the old Ambassador Hotel. It was a really, really beautiful thing. My girlfriend and I used to look in the Benabra's Messenger every week and to see what was going on. It's the same as, as people do today. And so I went to this really beautiful dance, and Marilyn said, Hey, there's Mar Scholar. Um, I dated him once. Come on, I'll introduce you. And so she introduced me, and I looked into the eyes. Marv had the kindest, most gentle eyes I had ever seen. And uh, I met him in January. He proposed to me in August. I'm still 118. By the time we were married in December... And all it took was the ring on my finger. I was 129. I'd already taken the food back. And Marv, uh, most of you know, Marvin died um, 21 months ago. And I, I want to talk about that. I really want to spend more time on that than anything else. But I want to bring you up to that point because we had, I had a baby 10 months later, and then Julie was born 17 months after that. And then my weight was just, my eating was out of control. My weight was out of control. Uh, I need to ask, how many people, first of all, have seen the new OA book and read it, have read my story? I don't know how much to, to repeat. How many of you, and if you haven't, you, you have to, you just have to. How many of you have read Beyond Our Wildest Dreams? 
This is your history. It's the history of Overeaters Anonymous. And that's why I don't want to repeat everything. Um, there's also available through World Service, um, they did a professional videotape of me doing the history of OA. So you can get this through World Service, too. I just promised Margaret World Service that I would, you know, I'm still in advertising, that I would tell you about this. Then I want to tell you that Overeaters Anonymous is a global organization. We are in 50 countries in 15 languages all around the globe. Um, how many of you are familiar with I Put My Hand in Yours? Well, you sh I put my hand in yours, and together we could do what we could never do alone. It is here. This is the book that I wrote in 1966, and I just because I happen to have this. Here it is in Spanish. But we are in Spanish and Italian and Hebrew and Icelandic and um, all kinds of languages. This is a global fellowship. And that is what I dreamed of when I went to the first GA meeting that I went to, which is, I, I can't go into that and go into my recovery. So you've got you've to read Beyond Our Wildest Dreams to get the history. You have to read this to get more of my story and see the videotape. I want to talk about what's happened to me in the last 21 months uh, because I did everything that everybody else did. You know, I, sometimes I would run back out and get it from the garbage can. I learned how to wrap up food in napkins and not crackly stuff so that my family wouldn't hear. I mean, I'm going absolutely bananas. I have two little babies uh, and no peace of mind and a lot of self-hatred. And I was 26, 27, 28, 29 years old. When Marvin and I took his friend to Gamblers Anonymous, which is, uh, was a new organization, uh, in 1958. So I was um, 29 years old then. And that's when my life changed. That's when the, it was the most remarkable night of my life uh, because I knew that, 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 that that's what I was doing. They were doing it in a different manner, but the lying and the cheating and the stealing and the self-hatred, that was me. And when I went back next year, the following year, to ask their founder, Jim Willis, who has since passed away, if he thought that I could start a group like theirs for people like me, he, Jim was in AA also, and he said, I don't see why not. Uh, I understand it because I'm also in AA. And he was, Jim was our, Jim was always first sponsor. He uh, was the one who helped me <laughs> when I changed the 12 steps, and I did change the 12 steps. There was no committee. I was all by myself. I made my own rules, and I took out step three. <laughs> And, of course, when you make your own rules, you, chip, you trip over them, too. Um, I stayed at 110 for years, several years in OA. And then um, I began to eat again in 1965 or so. And by 1973, and I was always national secretary, the first office was in my dining room. I'm still in the same house if anyone wants to come and see it. The OA archives are there. The, it's the same dining room. It's been remodeled, but it's, it's the same house in the same dining room, and you can come and see it while I'm still alive. <laughs> because someone had said he wanted, when I die, when I go, he said, you know, when you, mean, when you, when you go, you know what, you, what I mean by go, don't you, Roseanne? I want the bus tour concession, and I said my neighbors would just really be thrilled with something like that. Because I know what goes on in the house where Bill Wilson was born. There is a dozen. There's a cottage industry there, and I don't want that to happen to me. Uh, and I don't think Bill wanted it to happen for him either. But um, 
I want to talk about myself and the 12 steps in the last 21 months and how this program has really helped me. Uh, when Marv died, uh, it was it was sudden. He was um, he'd had um bypass surgery 20 years before. He had a sudden heart attack. He was in the hospital for four weeks, and then we took him off the breathing machine because he was deteriorating so fast. It was just it was just awful. That was November of 1999, uh, November 11th, um, and I became ill off and on. The stress was unbelievable. I've been in a bereavement group all this time, and that's been very helpful. But I had 12 steps, and I had OA people. the The relatives stopped calling, and the friends stopped calling. The non OA friends, but the OA people came under me like like a life support and they just supported me they dragged me out of the house when i couldn't stop crying and took me to dinner and took me to meetings that tuesday night hundred pounders group has become another family for me they were wonderful and i had i've taken 24 fourth steps and hundreds of 10 steps and i know how to work those steps and i knew that i had to work and i knew that i had to do what i always did Weigh and measure my food and count my calories because there's, well, you know, there's not a lot of me this way, so I can't eat as much as some of the taller people in OA and some of the taller guys. My friend A.G. in Texas, I told him he couldn't tell me anymore that he eats, he's about 6'4", so he eats between 2,500 and 3,500 calories. He's fine. He looks fine. He's lost 100 pounds. And I said, that's that's really two days for me, two, maybe two and a half days. So I said, next time around, I was just going to punch him, and he wouldn't be happy. So he hasn't, hasn't said that since then. <laughs> but um, I worked these steps. I have not been able to write an inventory since Marv died. I managed to write um, my, my little founder speech for the conference, and I have a September deadline to write an article on anonymity for the lifeline. I haven't been able to write for the, I have, I just haven't been able to do that. Um, then came about nine months later, this is now almost a year ago, and I was doing my yearly, um, doctor's, you know how you do your yearly doctor's checkups, and I had a mammogram, and I had breast cancer surgery, and I had seven weeks of radiation. And that was, that started about nine months after Marv died, and I had 12 steps, and I had OA, and I never stopped weighing, and I never stopped measuring. I had to change my eating plan. While I was going through radiation, they gave me different stuff to eat. Uh, it made me very puffy. It, it put five pounds on me, which still hasn't come off. The puffiness is just, just starting to go down. They said it would take two years. This was uh, at St. John's in the cancer clinic. And, of course, I still have to go in for checkups. During the period of radiation last year, my Social Security number was stolen. And so, stolen somewhere off the Internet. And so, I had to deal with that. But I had 12 steps, and I had people in OA, and I was still weighing and measuring my food. And all this time, all this time, I had God as I understand God. The one in whom I didn't believe all those years ago. The one for whom I removed step three. <laughs> about turning my will and my life over to him. And I, if I have time, I'll tell you how I came to find God. But I really want to talk to you about how this program can help you when life gets as tough as life is going to get. Um, 
Where, where was I? I told you my memory is not great. Where? Yeah, after the cancer, after the radiation. Oh, yep. Then I went to, uh, I, I, was, I was sick for a long time. Radiation and chemo, they make you terribly, terribly sick. They, when they kill the cancer, they kill everything, everything. So finally in April, I went, my daughter and her family moved to Pittsburgh, which I always felt was another loss. But I went to visit them. And I came home from Pittsburgh not only to a broken freezer, but someone had stolen my bank account checking number. And I am a victim a second time of identity fraud. And that's taken months. I'm still going through that. Um, I'm still going through it with the bank and the, report, the credit reporting agencies. And, and every single place where I have money, you know, visa, it doesn't matter. But I have 12 steps. And I have people in OA to talk to. And I have God as I understand God. And I know that the strength will be there. My first sponsor always said to me, first she said, I want you to act as if. You don't have to like, like to do it. You don't have to want to. And you don't have to believe it. All you have to do is do it. Take the action and the feelings will come afterwards. If you are still feeling the obsession, it doesn't matter. Weigh and measure. Do your exercises. The, the obsession will be lifted as a result of your actions. Don't wait for the obsession to be lifted first. And the same thing with all of this stuff that's been happening to me. And this wasn't the last. Uh, during the coming out of the identity theft and the police reports and all of that stuff, my daughter and my four-year-old grandson, whom I call the midnight wrecking crew, because <laughs> he took care of my sprinkler system and my, all kinds of stuff. But he's, he's, he's great. They came to visit me for five weeks, and on uh, July 30th this summer, I had cataract surgery. And I told my friend over here, it, that has been really hard. The um, radiation has prevented me from healing as fast as I wanted. Of course, I wanted to heal the next day. I made the doctor give me, give me glasses the next day, and he said, he said, I, this, nobody's like you. <laughs> and so, but, of course, as the eye healed, I needed new glasses. I want to tell you what I told you. Yesterday I got my new prescription, and I can see out of both eyes at the same time, and I don't have to take my glasses off, and I can read, and I am so grateful. Because during this time, I had 12 steps. I had the people in OA. I had God as I understand him, all in reverse order. I weighed and measured my food. There were times when I just was too sick to even eat what I knew I needed to eat. Uh, I was uh, still following the um, cancer program. I had to eat more protein than I was used to. But um, when I went in for my checkup in June, the uh, oncologist said, you are cancer-free. And I think that was a gift from God. And my eye is healing, and I think that's a gift from God. And the fact that I didn't put on 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 or God knows how much pounds, that's a gift from God. Um, I have brought the serenity prayer and the 12 steps into my bereavement group. They don't even know what hit them because they got those cookies sitting in the middle at every session. And they're complaining about gaining weight. And a couple of weeks ago, two of the women came to Serenity Sunday. And they loved it. I don't know if they'll come back, but they loved it. My job on this earth is to carry the message that I've been given. I don't have any other job. I mean, I've got, I've got a few. You know, I have to pay my bills like the rest of us. I have to do all that stuff. And that's another thing. 
No, no, let me back up. My job is to carry the message that God has given to me. And I want to tell you how I came to find God, because I don't usually talk about this. I have been uh, crucified in OA for 41 years. I've been treated so badly at conferences and so badly over the phone and so badly in meetings, especially in the first maybe 30, 35 years or so. This was in 1962. Some woman, they were, they were calling me names in the meetings, and some, and I, you know, I uh, was self-will run riot, but it didn't necessitate that reaction. Some woman called me up. God, she was just awful. She hasn't been in OA in all these years. Uh, one night, the living room was dark. My husband was asleep. My babies were asleep, and she just let me have it. Two nights later, she did the same thing. Now, this is a darkened living room, and I'm listening. I don't even remember her name. I'm listening to her. I, she finished. I slammed down the phone. I couldn't stop crying. I threw myself on the floor, and I said, Okay, God, if you want me, you've got me. And that's how I found God. Now, Jim Willis, I want to pass this on for anyone who is having trouble with the spiritual aspects of the program. <laughs> when I uh, rewrote the steps, and I, it wasn't only step three that I took out. I also took God out of a lot of them. And I changed, um, I, I just changed a lot of them. I rewrote them. Because what I said, what I said was that Bill Wilson was just a stockbroker, and I'm a professional writer. And I can do a much better job. And the only thing good that I ever did was to change the tradition um, about, um, no, 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 not, not anonymity. I, I'm, I'm trying to read it. Uh, press, radio, films. Telstar had just gone up, and my husband was an engineer, and I saw we were very much into that stuff. They had press, radio, and films. They still have that, I think, too. I think. Uh, and I, they, don't have, they didn't have television at the time. And I said, press, radio, films, television, and other public media of communication that has been our saving grace in that particular tradition uh, because it was there before there were committees and no, nobody had a vote. Oh, God. It was the only time that nobody had a vote. I mean, I could do what I wanted to do, including what was not good and what was good. But um, I did believe uh, – oh, yeah, I want to tell you about uh, Jim. <laughs> when Jim finally said – we were going on Paul Coates. We were doing some publicity. And Jim said, uh, he, I called him one day, and he said, you know, Roseanne, I can hear him clearing his throat. You have to do something about those steps before you go on Paul Coates. And I was so proud of them. I thought that were well-written and non-spiritual and all kinds of wonderful stuff. He said, if you could have done it by yourself, you would have done it by yourself. Why don't you take the capital P off of power and make it a small p? And say to yourself, I am willpowerless over food, and my life is unmanageable. Now, willpower is a dieter's term. And with that word, Jim got me. And what he did was to open the door for me into a spiritual life. I didn't at that point step across the threshold. But a couple of years later, uh, two or three years later, I did, because the door had been opened. Also, during all of this time in OA, and I've had two major relapses. One was what I said from 65 to uh, 73 when I went up to 185, and I was fired from the office. 
I was national secretary, and the trustees were, it was the best thing they ever did for me. They did not enable my disease. They said, you may not serve OA at this level, at this weight. And I was out. Now, they also tried to get me out of OA. They took out all the literature that had my name on it. That was not a great period. But it took me 20 years to forgive those trustees, 20 years, until I could come take enough inventories, and get to the point of forgiving them. I've also made amends to my parents, and I talk about that in here. Um, when I wrote the letter, my parents lived in Dallas. When I wrote the letter to them, how much time do I have left? Okay. All right. All right. There was, you know, those great big uh, uh, mailboxes that used to be on corners. I wrote a letter to them, and I remember walking down uh, Kingsland to put it in the bo- uh, put it in the box, and the door took a few seconds to clang shut. So I put it in the box, it turned around, and started to walk away, and the door clanged. And with that, 25 years of resentment fell right off my shoulders. And I no longer resented my mother. It was the most remarkable thing. And Thelma, my sponsor, had said, you're going to have to take the the eighth step and the ninth step. You won't get rid of anything until you do. So I did that. Um, I am facing uh, another cataract surgery in November. I'm going back to my daughter to visit her in Pittsburgh. for fall fall foliage season, but I want to talk about what you and OA have done for someone like me who's been going through, this has been a year, uh, 20 months of hell, between the identity theft and the cancer (laughs) and the Social Security and the cataract surgery and all three grandsons. I have three grandsons. Love them all. Pictures on request. They're so great. I just had the two older ones overnight. But I had Debbie and Nathan for five weeks. Boy, I, you've got to be young to have little children. That's what you have to be. But, but I did it. I did it with one eye blurred because I had postponed the cataract surgery because I didn't want to have it while they were there. And so I did it during their last week. Um, I don't know if what I have said has been of help to anybody. But I know, especially from these last... 21 months, but even before that, from all the other things that have happened to me in my life and in my family, uh, with the death of my parents, with my brother's heart surgery, and he's facing heart surgery again this year, and he just had it last year. With all of the stuff that's happened, I have 12 steps, and I work those 12 steps every single morning for the last 41 years, 42, about 41 years, ever since I hooked up with Thelma, who's been also been gone many years. I say the first three steps every morning. I say the third step prayer, and I say some other, I do some other prayer and meditation, period, to, to sort of ground myself and center myself for the day. And that goes for when I'm facing surgery, when I'm going through radiation, when I'm having problems. I do a lot of crying for my husband. Uh, Marv was 83. There was a big age, age difference. He had had a stent put in. He had heart trouble, and he had a stent put in, and a clot formed at the base of the stent, and he just he collapsed in Cedar Sinai cafeteria. He had gone down there to get something, and uh, I have was married to him for 44 years. Marvin was always first friend and sponsor. 
We had husbands who would say to the young women who came in, it's OA or me, make up your mind. You can't have us both. My husband put up with an office in the dining room and phones ringing all the time and a wife as crazy as I was and as obsessed as I was with this idea of this worldwide organization because from the moment I had the idea, I believed that OA would be around the world. This is not something that grew on me. I knew it from that moment and it is around the world and it has been around the world for uh, at least since 1979 because I was in groups then. I went across Europe visiting groups. Um, but Marvin uh, supported me, and his loss is my loss, and I have to find a way to use that to carry the message in the bereavement group to anyone else who's had a loss, and I do it in OA, and I do it with cancer. My job is to, as I said before, is to carry whatever gifts I've been given to someone else without putting extra food in my mouth. That's the hardest thing of all, because if I thought that Baskin-Robbins or peanut butter, which were my two things, would bring Marvin back or would make all this horrible stuff go away, I'd be, I'd be there. I mean, I'd have it in the house, but you know and I know that that's not going to solve anything, and it isn't going to bring Mark back, and it isn't going to undo what's happened to me, and so I have to use that. And it's hard. There are a lot of nights when I cry, but I never said I was going to abstain from crying. Um, and I don't intend to, although I have to be really careful now because I've got this little eye thing going on that's healing. I think that this has been the most remarkable four decades of my life. It has been the worst almost two years of my life, but it's been the most remarkable. I have two wonderful daughters one in Pittsburgh and one in Westlake Village, really great kids. Um, and I have three grandsons, two of whom are team tournament tennis champions, and the other of whom is, I don't know what he's going to be, but he got, I gave him all Marv's tools because that's what he does. And uh, I can enjoy them. I learned to laugh in OA. It hasn't been a very laughing two years, but I learned to enjoy life. I learned to laugh. I belong also to the Tinseltown Rose Society. I grow roses. Anybody want to know about roses? Ask me. <laughs> I've taken all three kids to La Brea Tar Pits. Ask me anything, anything about that. I've learned that, too. But I have been in the Rose Society now for several years. And that's a, another outlet for me. But I want to thank everybody in this room who has been helpful, so helpful to me during these last two years. And to give my love and thanks to the people who aren't here but who are in OA, who loved and supported me and continue to love and support me. I could not have done it without God as I understand him. I couldn't have done it without the 12 steps, and I couldn't have done it without the people in OA. And for that, I am most grateful. Thank you. All right. Five minutes of questions. I ran, can you imagine that I stopped before the time? Um, Roy said we have five minutes. Would anyone like to ask a question? Yeah.
In the beginning of OA, and I wish we'd bring it back, we had little cards that I had up all over the house, but I still, the, the principle is the same. Uh, abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. And that is absolutely needle, I used to needlepoint, needlepointed on my head, and I'm in, in my heart. If I am going to eat stuff that I'm not supposed to be eating at a time when I'm not supposed to be eating it, I will lose my soul and my heart and my mind and everything. And I won't do it anymore. And I've had plenty of reason to do it these last couple of years, and I won't do it. I would get on the phone. That's what I do. I would write. That's also what I do. I haven't done it so much since Marv died, but I have done it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And I have. That isn't true. I have written. Um, and, I get, and I get on the phone all the time. But I would never sit there alone, struggling, afraid that I was going to lose it. Look at all the people who will help you. And there are hundreds more. I would get a sponsor. I did get a sponsor. I would get a sponsor. I would take names from the We Care books that go around in other meetings. I'd get telephone numbers, and I would call. Because if you lose it, you lose everything. This is my feeling. And anything I say here is my opinion. I do not. God knows I don't represent OA. The trustees would be the first ones to tell you that. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, darling. I wouldn't call my food into another crazy compulsive overeater. But this is my feeling. I give my food to God. Everybody has to find a path in this in this life. What I don't like are the sponsors who say, get off that medication. And what is the medication? Stuff for diabetes, stuff for epilepsy, stuff for, you know, that kind of stuff. I think that is so dangerous. If you have that kind of a sponsor, find another sponsor. That's really dangerous. But aside from that, you have to find your own path. I'm not doing it. But that doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to do. It's just what I don't do. Yeah. No, no, I'm just looking at how much time we have. Thank you. Thanks. Anybody else? Yeah. You said that you had um, relapsed. Were you in the rooms of OA relapse? Oh, yes. And then how, how, what got you to the point of doing that and then what got you back? Um, it's in my story in here. Uh, and I, but I think it's important, and it's probably the last few minutes that I have. Uh, I had two relapses. That, that one in... Um, that ended in 72, I went to a meeting over at Palms Park when they had the building behind the library. And uh, a lady was talking that I'd never met, and I went up to her. God, it was so hot, and I'm in my big black coat, because I thought it would hide everything. And um, I went up to Cynthia, and I said, this is my last OA meeting. I'm leaving. And the next day, she called me, and she said, hi, I just want to tell you I love you. Bye. She hung up. She did that every day for weeks. She was the first person in OA, because we can really dig each other, the first person in OA who loved me because I was a human being on this planet and not because I was abstaining or, or uh, not abstaining or, or fat or thin or whatever. That's how I came back that time. 
during the second relapse, which was caused by medication that had a, a side effect of weight gain, A.G., the man from Texas who's, who's Chapter 5 mail call, that's A.G., and he's also in the new book, his story. His story is the one about the man who never let a hot donut get cold. Um, that's A.G., that's my A.G., but uh, he was here for an L.A. birthday party, and Marv and I, we were all going out to dinner, taking turns, paying the check. I'll do this really fast. He took a piece of paper out of his pocket, and I said, what are you doing? It's our turn to pay the check. And he said, I'm counting my calories. So I took that home that night, and I said, I could do that. I grew up counting calories. I could do that. And I started, this is now 14 years and almost 10 months ago. I started weighing and measuring and counting my calories the next day. And about three days later, when I felt this beautiful, wonderful light and lifting of my spirit, and I knew that it was hope, I knew I had to start working the steps. You don't just weigh and measure. That's not enough. And I went right back to working the steps. But that's how I came back. But Father Bose, who was the, anybody remember the church at Crescent Heights, said to us, well, this is a good thing to end on, said to us, if you, there's a spiritual truth, of a spiritual principle. If you remove your body from the truth, then when you are ready for it, the truth is nowhere to be found. If you keep your body at the truth, which is what happened to me because I stayed in the rooms. If you keep your body at the truth, then when you are ready, the truth is there for you. And that's what happened to me.